Hello there, and welcome to episode two of Disrupt Podcast's latest dedicated series focused on Africa's agricultural technology revolution. We're looking at what has been achieved so far, how speedy progress has been, and what is still to be done to ensure African farmers produce enough food to feed the continent, and perhaps the rest of the world, while also building sustainable agribusinesses. This mini-series is brought to you in partnership with South African agritech company IQ Logistica, who we thank for their support. In episode one, released last week, we touched on some of the key numbers surrounding agriculture in Africa, which demonstrate both its sublime potential and its serious weaknesses. More than half of employed people in sub-Saharan Africa are active in agriculture. The sector accounts for about 35% of the continent's GDP, and about 45% of the world's area suitable for sustainable agriculture production expansion is located in Africa. This rich potential, however, is chronically underpowered. Africa is a potential breadbasket of the world, yet far from feeding the world, African agriculture can't currently even feed Africa. Across the continent, the number of people experiencing food insecurity increased to almost 800 million in 2021, nearly 60% of the continent's population. Most African countries are net food importers. In the first episode of this three-part series, with the help of David Jeremin and Wade Breitenbach from IQ Logistica, we looked at the inherent potential within the African agriculture space and how access to finance was the main issue farmers perceived to be holding them back. Tech startups have, however, become increasingly active in other areas in the last few years, and in this episode, we'll move the conversation beyond one that simply looks at money. We hope you enjoy it. In last week's episode, we mostly covered how African agri-tech startups were helping farmers track their income and expenditure, build credit records, and access finance to grow their business vital and pioneering work, and solutions that formed the crux of the original agri-tech boom in Africa. Finding new tech-savvy ways of helping previously financially excluded farmers to access finance for inputs was the pivotal first wave of African agri-tech. As David mentioned in the last episode, however, there are other issues, key among them access to product and market. And tech startups are busy addressing these issues. Businesses like Twigger Foods, Apollo Agriculture, We Farm and Aerobotics, to name but a few, are doing everything from helping farmers sell their produce at the best price, learn new skills and monitor their crops using IoT technology. Many of these businesses are doing great work, but in an ecosystem that is still so nascent, it is always likely that lots of companies are doing lots of overlapping things at the same time. This means the market is disjointed and fragmented, with many players playing in isolation. This means execution can suffer, said David. It's difficult because, I mean, obviously, if you look at the the sheer size of the continent and obviously, you know, looking at it from a TAM perspective, there's a lot of companies that are doing a lot of things. And, and, you know, one of the things, obviously, that I've kind of brought along with me from Silicon Valley was really this observation when, you know, when when money starts coming in and flowing to a given sector, um, you're going to see in, in kind of the, the early phases of development, it's going to be kind of scattershot. And, and you've seen the same thing on the continent over the past five years. I think there's been roughly, there's been approximately 600 deals that have been done. Um, I mean, you know, you're, you're tipping out in, in the aggregate almost a billion dollars in funding a lot of deals in a lot of different places. And I, I think again, one of those interesting, you know, things that you need to be aware of regarding the TAM is this isn't like, you know, some sort of app or some sort of service that's going to go viral and, and just be able to spread like, like wildfire, like an Instagram or a TikTok or something like that. It's still, you know, the, the market is still very fragmented. 
So you have a bunch of people that I think are, for the most part, still kind of playing in isolation. There are certainly, you know, anybody that has any sort of fintech uh, association with their strategy, I think is probably being done out of necessity as opposed to desire. <laughs> and in, in that's part of an African solution. Uh, again, you can have the greatest tech on the planet, but if you don't know how to get it into the hands of a, a poor farmer as well as a commercial farmer, if you have access to commercial farmers, um, then, you know, your TAM is going to shrink. So coming up with innovative ways of being able to finance that, which then tends to start extending more into providing, you know, crop finance and other sorts of finance, bridging finance, it becomes a natural part of the equation. And, and that's one of the difficulties, I think, in, in being involved in a platform play is that, it, it, again, you know, I've looked at a, a number of success stories on the continent and typically those success stories um, from, from a technological standpoint, they all end up getting exported to, to markets that can, that are big enough and are able to afford the tech. So here it's basically one of these things that if you do a real deep dive and you really kind of understand what your, your TAM, your demographic looks like, um, you're going to come to find that you could have the best tech on the planet. But if you don't have a way to be able to kind of I extract your revenue in some sort of self-liquidating way, um, it's, it's not going to matter much. And so, you know, that's just kind of one of those cautious balances when you're involved in a market in, on, on the continent that you need to be aware of. That being said, is entrepreneurship still the best solution to Africa's agricultural challenges? David thinks so. I mean, look, I, I wouldn't be very American if I uh, didn't say that entrepreneurship wasn't the way to go and solve this. <laughs> and, and it's one of the exciting things I, I think that, you know, I, I bring to, to IQL and in, in my contribution to the space is that, um, look, you know, agriculture has so much complexity around it that you literally need maniac entrepreneurs who wake up thinking about this problem. They go to sleep thinking about this problem. They live it, they eat it. You know, I've, I've obviously in, in my experience over the past 17 years, I've been involved and I've worked alongside of, and I've seen a ton of donor funded initiatives. Um, and, and I've also seen, you know, a lot of grassroots, uh, you know, for-profit and nonprofit work to go and start looking at the same problem. And, and, you know, the outcome always comes back to the, the free markets who have the ability to kind of innovate around these problems in a way that governments and, and, you know, your traditional kind of DFIs, um, don't have either the, the latitude to be able to explore or really the bandwidth. Wade agrees entrepreneurs have the dynamism to directly tackle the sector's inherent problems. I think entrepreneurship is, is extremely crucial um, within any sector, especially agriculture. Um, I think it, it sort of brings, brings new ideas and a quick call to action to those new ideas. I feel, you know, entrepreneurs have, you know, to, to make it as an entrepreneur, you sort of have to solve a problem. Uh, I don't think you any entrepreneur has ever sort of, you know, seen a market niche and, and, and really gone for it and not, and not sort of failed. I mean, you know, and I think with entrepreneurship comes 
the ability to tackle those problems directly. And, you know, sort of with the funding and the support of investors, um, you sort of, you have a quicker call to action. I'd say a lot of the bigger guys, you know, they've, they're well established. I mean, if you look at fertilizer companies, they've, they've, they've invested billions of dollars over the course of decades. You know, that's, that's their business and it's very well established, you know, but when you start looking at, for example, smaller fertilizer companies, you, you find a gap in the market and you tackle that specifically that the bigger guys might not even really want to look at because it affects their business as a whole and they might have to do restructuring. Whereas, this, you know, entrepreneurship brings brings about change. Um, and I think it's targeted change um, and necessary in my opinion. And if entrepreneurs can come up with the right solutions and perhaps work more closely together, there are huge untapped opportunities. I happen to think that it's it's one of the opportunities. I mean, it certainly is you know, how do you view the, the situation? Certainly in, you know, the EU or in North America, you probably wouldn't see the opportunity to collaborate on the scale that you can here. And that's, again, you know, I think one of those opportunities that are, are afforded to startups um, that are operating in this sector and on this continent is that, it, again, it's such an untapped market with such a massive TAM that's so highly overlooked that there's a lot of room for a lot of people to be able to play successfully. I mean, again, you know, we, we look at it from the perspective, if, if there's 800 million farmers on the continent, our um, kind of initial foray into the small farmer market is demonstrating that there's roughly about 20% um, smartphone uptake in that group. So, you know, you're looking at a TAM, a, a possible TAM of 160 million farmers on the continent that you could potentially reach using a, a cloud-based platform strategy. So that gives a tremendous amount of opportunity. And also, I think, you know, the, the collaboration aspect is, is one, it's something that's going to become more and more important, I would say, over the next 18 to 24 months especially if um, venture funding, you know, remains difficult to raise. I think that you're going to potentially see a lot of consolidation. So not even just partnerships, but just outright, uh, uh, outright M&A activity that will be happening. But at the same time, I think it's, it's, again, it's one of those things that it's really just too early to say, but it's certainly the, the development of the middle market what I've seen, whether it's the middle class from the um, from the consumer to middle class of again venture funded small to medium enterprises that really have good financial backing standing behind them, is that you're starting to see the the early phases of the creation of this middle market. And again, if you look at Latin America, if you look at Southeast Asia, if you look at India. Um, alongside of, again, the North Americas and in, in the EUs of the world, the the middle market is the engine. You know, you can have, obviously, on the banking side, it's too big to fail and these kind of mega banks that sit out there. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you start developing capacity in a middle market capacity, it it absolutely, it, it ignites the, the the sectors that they're involved in. Wade says data, capturing it and utilising it, is key to developing agriculture in Africa. And the reason it is important for a farmer to capture those, the, you know, data on his farm, um, how the season's doing with environmental data. So tech, like you say, is an enabler. And what tech does is it combines a lot of different features, like you've got IoT, 
Um, you can use soil probes. We use satellite information. And it's about putting all that into sort of one basket and then saying, okay, what, what does this mean? And, and we have uh, in-house data scientists that that's actually track exactly what's going on. And I think it's important, you know, with, with a changing climate, um, you know, things are, things are, if you look at droughts that are, you know, ravaged through a country, you got heat waves and that hit, hit times of the year that aren't supposed to. So I think getting data within agriculture is extremely important and um, using that data to, to offer insight as to what to do next. Because I can tell you now that in a hundred years time, uh, climate is the climate where you, you are and myself is going to be completely different. Hence the crops that are planted there need to be extremely different in the sense of what do we plant? How do we do it? What, what, what cultivar do we use? What's, you know, what's, what sprays do we use? You know, so I think ultimately the idea is, is this is not just to improve the yield um, of a farmer and grow a business. It's to ensure food security globally, because I think without this data that we, that we, you know, strive to sort of get, and I think it's, it's, yeah, it's important to get, to get, uh, call it the right, the right choices in front of the farm in, in order for the globe to, to stay full. We are also entering into an era where governments and DFIs are much more open to working with African agri-tech ventures. It's actually, it's, it's exciting times. I, I think, you know, as IQL, we've gone through this evolution of kind of a, a lot of knowledge building with various stakeholders. I mean, if you're putting your stake in the sand as an ecosystem builder, not only are you talking to farmers, you're talking to NGOs, you're talking to development-led initiatives. And for the most part, you know, there's, there's this huge sea change of, of behavior when people actually get to see like, this is where the tech is and, and it's an exciting opportunity. So, you know, what we've seen is that governments from a, a, a policy standpoint, um, are certainly much more open to having discussion with discussions with other, uh, government divisions or NGOs or farmer associations to be able to subsidize some of the software costs because they know that, you know, you're going to end up reducing their customer acquisition cost or their input costs or their finance costs, you know, by orders of magnitude. So, you know, the cost benefit is there. And so it's been a little bit of, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a slow grind in kind of changing people's perspective. But, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the technology is here. I think the underlying stack in education as well as connectivity is really supportive where it used to be a, a headwind. Now it's becoming more of a tailwind. So um, I am seeing more and more outreach from, from government and DFIs um, to be able to go and insert that, you know, that digital intervention and in, in support for it. Wade says where governments, NGOs and startups can get aligned and find a way to work together effectively, they can have significant impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about the benefits of grants and, and for example, support from the government, I think it's crucial because, you know, government sort of, you know, I think worldwide, no one is probably happy with their government. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people in the government um, that really want to do good. And I think it's, you know, it's not necessarily always the government's responsibility. I think it's the responsibility of yourself or myself being a citizen of, of the country and a continent is to actually, you know, so I think, 
I think getting that support from NGOs and grants, I think it is important. But I think what's more important is the discussions between, you know, your smaller companies and your startups with those governments and, and what are your goals? You know, I mean, we've had uh, plenty of conversations with the Department of Agriculture and, and, and hearing, you know, I think getting aligned on the same page is, is more important and, and sort of them seeing your side and, and what you're trying to do and actually having that backing supports supports your purpose. I think, you know, having that that support from a grant or, you know, any big NGO or call it the government, getting that support kind of reaffirms what you're doing, you're on the right path. And I think you, you've got that support as well. You've got a big, call it your big brother, holding you up and sort of guiding you um, through the pathways. And, and when you start looking at connections as well, um, you know, you, you kind of just grow that, grow that web of, 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 you know, uh, call it connections. And, um, yeah, I think it's extremely important. And I think, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a responsibility of, of, of big companies to, to branch out and to, and to invest into startups with, with great ideas, because, you know, that's, that's ultimately how you grow the economy and, and you lift up, you know, people within, within the country. And, and I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a great way to, you know, it's, it's still relevant. It's definitely still relevant. The bad news, however, is that the African agritech space is as affected by others, by the global capital shortage. The likes of Twigger, Apollo, and in fact IQ Logistica have raised decent-sized rounds over the last few years. But now African agritech, like everything else, is embarking on the era of the reset. It already has been uh, affected, I, I think, alongside of, of everybody else. You know, you pose a really, really good question. And, and it's difficult because sometimes I find myself wearing a, a couple of different hats. I used to be an investor. So I used to actually love kind of kicking tires on, on deals like what is my own company now? But, you know, I have to tell you, when, when I see kind of the, the, the global VC landscape, not necessarily the, you know, the, the, African private equity sector, but I'm talking about like Tiger, um, Tiger Global, and in the the big guys like that, um, or a, a SoftBank, who you know were involved in the round, obviously with Apollo. Um, it, it always frightens me a little bit because um, because I know from experience that heck, you know, I've been doing this for 17 years and I, I'd like to think that I've developed a certain amount of tacit knowledge. And I certainly have smart people around me all day, which I'm very fortunate. But, um, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, VCs, VCs certainly write a check and there's a tremendous amount of value in it. But the success of VCs, at least from what I've seen in, let's say, Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley in New York, is not just the check. It's the connectivity to the rest of the portfolio. It's the laying of the ecosystem around it because they're seeding the, you know, the, the investment ecosystem in a given sector. I think Bitcoin is a great example of this. I mean, you know, Bitcoin was a technology that was fantastic, but it was brought to life by venture investors. And it's the same thing here around ag tech. So I think the sector needs to grow and to continue growing. I think we need to actually not necessarily take a pause, but you need to see, you know, are there good, are there good comps that get generated out of the 600 deals that have been funded over the last, you know, four or five years 
to go and basically say, you know, do the economics make sense? I, I, I happen to believe, um, obviously, because I, I love kind of looking for patterns out there. If, if you're even vaguely familiar with what um, PSG, the investment group down here, did with Capitec. Capitec was, you know, South Africa's first low-cost, low-fee, pro-poor bank. And, and Capitec won. And Capitec then has now kind of kicked open the door for completely complete neobanks like Time Bank to go and evolve from that model. But they were the first. And, and it was a market segment that was completely overlooked. It wasn't necessarily easy to, to get your head around, you know, how do you, how do you remain solvent when you're basically giving bank accounts away? Um, it's the same thing you're going to see here in, in African ag tech. And um, we're really excited because I think, you know, the, the strategy and the go-to-market that we've used has been one that says, look, we know our economic engine really sits in underwriting insurance policies and issuing farmer loans and delivering product to them. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is I, I don't know how many other ag tech companies on the continent really kind of understand how difficult platform economics are. And do they have the competency and the tacit knowledge to be able to go and bring those products and services um, to, you know, to their farming community? So it's interesting. And I think, you know, there's, it's, it's certainly, it's a great time to be alive. I think what we're going to see over the next 18 to 24 months is that companies that do have traction can go and start pointing towards successful economic metrics. They're going to win. But, you know, the market can also hold 100 winners in it. Generally, however, there is strong investor interest in the ag tech space that isn't going to go away given the size of the opportunity and the need for investment. I definitely think that interest is growing. And I think along with, you know, I think the fact that tech is a feature of agriculture, I think that has sparked a lot of interest. And, I, and you know, agriculture actually kind of forms the basis of society as we know it today. I mean, without, without agriculture, there wouldn't be the population that we have. And, you know, we wouldn't have been able to focus our skills on different things if we weren't getting food on our, on our table every day. So I think the need for investment in agriculture is huge. And I think private equities and, and investors see that. Um, I think everyone sort of wants to put their finger and dip their toe in agriculture. And I think especially a lot of the investor companies are more familiar with the technology side. Um, you know, so I think that sort of is a is an incentive to to kind of get involved with with agriculture and it's their way of of being a part of it and i and i definitely think there is a need um and i think you know the the call it i would say the the interest is there but um yeah like i think you know what education around it just sort of needs to be a bit more broad and, and the transfer of information but um yeah the need you can see a lot of investment investors are are definitely wanting to to sort of dip their toe in agriculture. And this is the way to do it. African agritech startups have an advantage in that they have the potential to plug into donor capital. Though they need to make sure they are not relying on it. As I mentioned, I, I obviously, I've, I've worked in a, a few different countries where there's a tremendous DFI presence. And in the, the main DFIs that I tend to kind of think around, I think around BII and I think around USAID and DFC, and in you know the, the the big initiatives that are aiming to 
you know, really uplift um, smallholder farmers. But in, in South Africa, you don't have the same sort of developmental resources. That's, it's been fairly relegated to the, the South African government. And, and so the way I, I look at your question and why I think the question is difficult is you can look at it two ways. Um, for, for companies, for for-profit companies, so let's say an Apollo or a Pula or a Twiga or a Thrive, um, there's a tremendous amount of donor activity that's in, in the countries and the jurisdictions that they're operating in. But those donor initiatives are finite, meaning that they're going to last three years, five years. There should be, you know, potentially a public-private partnership. But at the end of the day, there's a huge risk that the initiative isn't going to go forward and the potential beneficiaries of the donor assistance are not necessarily going to benefit, which means that as, as a business, you're walking headfirst into a business risk. I mean, especially if we're just talking about software and platform companies where, you know, your life is what's your ARR. And so, you know, you don't want to get, and especially if we're in this kind of, you know, funding winter, like it, it feels like we're in now, where the further you, you get along and the stickiness of your customer group and you don't want to go and start gaming, you know, what your numbers are, um, I, I think it's almost a false sense of security. So on one side, you can make the argument and you could say, look, we're aligning with grant funding or donor funding which reduces our customer acquisition cost. And you can sit there and you can say, okay, well, you know, look, Naked Insurance isn't a beneficiary like that. <laughs> or, you know, like the, 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 the auto companies are not beneficiaries. But I, I also think it's, it's a false sense of security. And so it's, it's always been something that I've been really proud of, I think both in my, you know, previous life as an investor, as well as, you know, an executive at IQL, is that we've always been focused on markets that have the potential to be self-sustaining, where we have a certain amount of control that, um, that you know, we can contribute to, to the process. I, I hope that makes sense. Entrepreneurs then have the capacity to tackle many of the long-standing problems within Africa's agricultural space, so long as they have the right support from venture capitalists, donors and government in doing so. That's it for this second episode of our three-part series on agrotech in Africa. Many thanks to our friends at IQ Logistica for making it possible. Next week, in the final instalment of the series, we'll be discussing the challenges associated with scaling an agrotech business in Africa. For now, bye-bye.